Good morning, Cornerstone. Good morning. Hi, hello. What day is today in the church calendar? Pentecost. Jay will be preaching on fire and wind and all of that stuff. I would like to start by reading from Leviticus 9, if everybody could stand up for the reading of the word. I know when everybody thinks Pentecost, they think Leviticus. So, who doesn't? This is chapter 9. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering to the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him. And he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside of the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering and Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him piece by piece, and the head, and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented to the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar, besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox, of the ram, the fat tails that which it covers, the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the on the breasts. And he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. I'm glad to be with you and uh, excited to be teaching um, today and did I turn this thing on, or did I turn it off? All right, cool. Um, so it's great to be with you, and uh, I'm stoked because, you know, today's Pentecost, and um, Pentecost is such a formational time, both in the history of the nation of Israel, also in the history of the nation of the church, and uh, who we are as, as God's people. And, um, you know, when we think about Pentecost, we almost always um, think about the the birth of the church and like speaking in tongues and um, all of the, uh, um, you know, wild, amazing things that happened, Peter's sermon and uh, people coming to Christ. And 
It's important to remember that Pentecost is, is very much rooted in, in Judaism when it comes down to it. It's, it's rooted in the people of God. It is a very, very ancient, ancient festival. It's one of the original festivals of the rhythms of the nation of Israel that God laid down in the law. It's all about the harvest. It's interesting then when Pentecost happens in Acts chapter 2, the result of that is a harvest. 3,000 souls are added to their number. Like Pentecost exists for the purpose of harvest. We tend to think of Pentecost and we tend to think of the sensationalism of it, particularly like when you read the text and you see these, uh, the, the apostles um, and the people who are sharing the gospel speaking in tongues. It's like, so, so, you know, how did that happen and how did that work and uh, should you speak in tongues or should I speak in tongues or what does that matter? Look, folks, tongues is the last thing that you should care about in Acts chapter 2. Tongues is just a tool. It's just a means to an end. If you want to deal with tongues, flip over to 1 Corinthians 14. That's where Paul can really go into it. But the point of Acts chapter 2 has almost nothing to do with tongues. It has everything to do with the fulfillment and the fullness of something that's been coming for a very, very, very long time. Acts chapter 2 and the Pentecost experience that the people engage together and the birth of the church is a uh, fulfillment of prophecy and of life and of goodness that has been rooted in the culture of the people of God from the very, very beginning. And the main point of Acts chapter 2 is not tongues, and the main point of Acts chapter 2 is not even the people. The main point of Acts chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit. The Pentecost, the Pentecost celebration and the Pentecost experience is a day that the Holy Spirit shows up. And shows up in empowering ways that completely, that completely sets fire to the church. And when you think about what the church is and who the church is meant to be, we tend to stray, just like any organization, we tend to drift from some of the core things that we were actually created for and in. And the presence of God through his spirit, in the hearts and the minds of his people. God coming in power and in glory and filling, filling the the very temple that is his people. And then the resulting work of that being a harvest. That is Pentecost. Pentecost is not about sensationalism. Pentecost is not about gifts. Pentecost, frankly, it's not even about Peter's sermon, even though that's the majority of of the text. Pentecost is about the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is about the Holy Spirit coming in power and in glory and about the resultant harvest as a result of the Spirit being in and among his people. When you look at and read the end of Acts chapter 2, you see that the the, uh, apostles, they led the people in devoting themselves to four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to the sacrament, and to prayer. They did not devote themselves to outreach or to evangelism of any kind. The last verse of Acts chapter 2 says, And the Lord added to their number daily all of those who were being saved. The harvest that we are called to reach is not a harvest that can be strategized. Did you know that there were about a dozen major world evangelization movements trying to get the world evangelized by the year 2000? And that Y2K and all the freak outedness about it was actually about all of those failing. <laughs> way more than it was about technology. It was this idea that if we, we can just strategize and work our way to an end, that we can actually usher in the kingdom of God. That's a false theology. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come and is among the people of God. And as the people of God release and grow in their identity as the people of God, then we see the fullness of the people of God becoming the place that harvest is then reaped from because the only way the people of God can be the people of God is by the people of God living by the Spirit of God. And when the Spirit of God is released among the people of God, harvest happens. 
You can't make it happen. You can't strategize for it. You can't work hard enough to do it. And honestly, how do you know when you ever got there? You know, so I shared the four points with all the people in the world today. You can't lead them to faith, right? I mean, you can't change their heart. You know, what's a real conversion? What's a false conversion? What do you do with people? There's still four kinds of soil, right? What do we do with all that? All of our metrics and all of our measurements have fallen so short of the actual intention that God has for us to live by and to live in, which is this, that you are the temple of God. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit and the way in which he came continues to be the way in which he desires to come. Everybody hear that? The Holy Spirit and the nature and the way in which he came is the way that he desires to still come. Take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to teach over here today in the light as Jesus is in the light instead of in the darkness since I don't love darkness rather than light because my deeds are not evil. That's John chapter... That's John chapter 3. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews devout from every nation under heaven. That's interesting, right? Everybody catch that verse? Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. In my opinion, this is just one dude's opinion, right? The Great Commission was accomplished, Acts chapter 2, verse 5. So all of our endeavors is like, this has been fulfilled, Uh, when it comes to, like, you need to share the gospel with the whole world. That happened immediately, and God orchestrated it, not not us. Anyway, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia... Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. In Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost comes and they arrive, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, if you want to have a lot of fun with your text one day, like go to blueletterbible.com or Bible Gateway or whatever and, and do a word search on the word suddenly in the Bible and look at the way in which the word suddenly is used, particularly in the New Testament, but, but, but throughout the text. Because the word suddenly is the least controllable word in, in the text. Anytime you see the word suddenly, something is going to happen that's not expected. And that suddenly is going to be on... Most of the time, I want to say all the time, but most of the time is going to be a move of God that if the people receive it, something really good happens. And if the people reject it, something really bad happens. But the suddenlies are uncontrollable. It's just God in heaven being God, and then suddenly, boom, here's something. Do you want it? You don't want it? Then there's, there's something to do receive as a consequence from that. You want it? There's something else to receive as a consequence from that. One of the great ways we need to live our lives is being ready for God's suddenlies. I mean, suddenlies find you all the time, right? You are all sitting here with suddenlies in your life. Things that you did not want and did not ask for, right? Or blessings that you didn't realize were coming and good things that you aren't sure why you have them, but you do both material, spiritual, emotional, whatever it might be. And suddenly, it finds us all the time. And it's that uncontrollable way that God is reaching out and speaking to his people. And the question is always, will you receive God's suddenlies or will you reject God's suddenlies? 
whatever happens, however it is that you engage a suddenly from God, will have a, that, that, it, that is a turning point. You'll go one way or another. And there's still grace for both sides of the journey. You know, don't hear me saying this isn't about right and wrong. But this is very much about, like, how in tune are we with God? And to what degree are we connected to his heart to receive what it is that he brings to us? A lot of the times the things that we call coincidences or the things that we call curses are oftentimes God suddenly trying to transform and change us to be something more than what we are. And suddenly they were together. They were together in the room. And then suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The Holy Spirit is coming in Acts chapter 2. The word for spirit in Hebrew is ruach. Let me hear you say ruach. Ruach. It means breath. It means breath at its core. In Greek, in the New Testament, the word is pneuma. Let me hear you say pneuma. Pneuma. It's the word wind, which is very similar. Right? Breath. Wind. The very word spirit, the very word spirit, but just from a grammar standpoint, carries with it the idea of something blowing through, right? the, the, the wind. Right? I mean, how windy was it la- like yesterday afternoon, mid-afternoon? It got really windy, right? Did you guys see that wind? Everybody saw that wind? No, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> you can't see the wind. You, know, you, can't, you can't see the wind. You can see the effects of the wind. This is Billy Graham. Uh, Jesus, with the Jesus Freak album, has that quote in it. You know, I don't see the wind, but I see the effects of the wind. Um, it's the same as it's spirit. It's the spirit. That's exactly right, Billy. I'm telling Billy Graham he's right. Um, <laughs> like the wind of God is this unseen but deeply strong force that blows through us and that blows into us In fact, isn't that sort of how all of this stuff begins? Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Interesting point here, right? The earth was without form. So it was without form. What else was it without? It was without void, which means it was not empty. The earth was without form, but it was not empty. It was full. The earth earth was full of something. It was without form, and it was without void. So there was something there. And what is that something? It's the wind of God. The Spirit of God is hovering the Spirit of God was hovering over it. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So here is God himself who is over this chaos. And the, the wind of God is moving. The wind of God is blowing. The Spirit of God is hovering over this, which is the idea of authority. Right? So it's, I mean, this language is chosen purposefully. Hovering over the chaos. And then it calls to the chaos And it says, begin to be ordered. And from the order comes light. God separated the light and the darkness. The second day, God makes the atmosphere. He makes the wind. He makes the the space between the land and outer space. He makes the atmosphere for us. Chapter three, or I'm sorry, the third day, he uh, makes land. So he creates deep orders of abundance. Day one, he create, separates light from darkness. Day four he, is when he makes sun, moon, and stars. So there is light before there's sun, moon, and stars. Everybody got that? First day of creation is about natural law. Right? It's about natural law, light and darkness. Light and darkness. Time is light moving across space. Right? So light moving across space. So the idea of like light being separated and pulled out it's the basic building blocks of who we are. Andy Crouch says the first three days of creation, God's creating order. The next three days of creation, four, five, and six, sun, moon, and stars, fish, birds, animals. And then we're told that the waters teem with all of the fish. Like they are filled to overflowing. 
the land is in abundance. Right? The, the, the vegetation, all of the, all the good things that God puts on the land. Order, first three days. Abundance, the next three days. And in the combination of order and abundance, God creates humans and puts them there to oversee and have dominion over the order and abundance. So Andy's equation is order plus abundance equals flourishing. So when things lose order, or when we choose to live in poverty, humans cannot flourish. The way that humans live, though, is not by our own flourishing, but actually by the flourishing of God. Because this idea of breath is found again very quickly. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. The wind of God blows into the people of God and there is life. Before that, there was structure. Right? God made, God molded the man from the dirt. So here's the dirt and he's forming it and here it is. But it's still just structure. It's still just something that's ordered. It doesn't have life yet. It's not abundant yet. And God breathes into this structured form. And God breathes into it, and suddenly abundance is present. And now the man becomes something alive. This is what the Spirit of God specializes in. Both of these things, both in ordering our lives and in bringing great and deep abundance to them. The Spirit's presence, the wind that blows through us, Like, this is the work of God. This is the breath of God. And on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, and there is wind. There can't not be wind. That's that's the word, right? That's, That's the word. The Spirit comes in wind. The Spirit also comes in fire. Now, fire's an interesting idea. If one of you decided to be dumb, which happens from time to time, and if you just yelled fire in a panicked voice, what would, what would happen? No, I mean, you can get arrested for that kind of stuff. You know, fire. Fire is this thing that, like, we look at. Like, fire is a building block of life. It's one of the first things that, like, you see, you see cavemen doing in cartoons, you know. It's building fire and making misshapen wheels. That, that, that's caveman life, building fire and misshapen wheels. The fire... Uh, fire is an element, just an elemental construct, and it requires three things. What three things are required for fire? All right, air, wind, fuel, and heat. Yep, air, fuel, and heat. If you have those three things, you can make fire. Without any one of those three things, you can't have fire. Keep that in mind. Everybody got that? All right, so we're just going to set that aside. We'll come, we'll come back to it. Fire in the Bible is, is an incredibly powerful concept. It's an incredibly powerful concept. It, it's hard to overstate just how important the idea of fire is. Today we're going to build a quick systematic theology of fire. The first time you see fire in the Bible, anybody know? First time we see fire? What's that? Yes, that's right. It's Abram. But it's not Isaac, interestingly. The first time, it's the covenant, that's right. The first time that we see fire in the Bible, it is God. That's very important. The first time we see fire in the Bible, it's God. Genesis 15. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot, And a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. I taught on this, I don't know, a couple months ago, where where Abram's put into a deep rest, God walks through, and what it is that goes through is fire. Right? Fire's walking through. The first appearance of fire in the scriptures is God himself. So if you are a Torah-reading Jew and you don't know anything about God, or if I just give you a Bible, and you don't have a construct for religion, and you read the text, then your definition of fire, and the way you think about fire, is God. 
Everybody got that? Don't let your culture speak to this. We don't value fire. Fire is something fun for us. Let's build a fire. And then we all sit around and try and, you know, keep the fire going and try and avoid the smoke. We complain about the smoke, even though we built the fire and then sit around the fire. And we're like, oh, the smoke's in my eyes. Well, you know, hello. And uh, fire is this very, fire is not to us what it is, what it is to an ancient culture. Fire is one of those things that without which you don't make it. Like you, you, you have to have fire. It's one, it's, it's one of the building blocks of what it means to be human. So for us to see fire showing up and for it to be God, and the original definition of fire is the presence of God. That's an important definition. Fire goes on. The angel of the Lord appeared to who? Moses. In a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. So another major occurrence of fire in the scriptures is, again, God. God as fire. He looked, and behold, the bush, was not, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. The bush was burning, but it was not consumed. So, and then God speaks from the fire. Exodus 13, the Lord before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from them before the people. So again, God is showing himself to his people as a cloud, which, by the way, if you are going to look for wind, clouds are something that are very synonymous for us with wind. You can can look at the sky and see clouds moving. That that, that is wind that is pushing them. So you realize, like, 24-7, we have this indication of the Spirit of God in our midst. The Jewish rabbis, the mystics, the cabal, uh, had this theory, and I think I've shared this before, about the name of Yahweh. Yahweh in Hebrew is spelled yod heh vah and this is the Hebrew, Hebrew letters, yod heh vah And if you say those quietly and in a synchronous rhythm, yod heh vah yod heh vah yod heh vah you can do that forever because you're breathing in and breathing out by the bowels. It's this idea of going in and out, in and out. And the mystic rabbis would say that the very name of God is the act of breathing. The very name of God is being declared every time humans take a breath. The idea of light being in our world and of God being a fire is another one of these presentations. Moses went up on the mountain. The cloud covered the mountain. Here's the cloud again. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. In Leviticus... The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning. He shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. The fire is not allowed to die. It is a perpetual fire. There is never to not be fire going on the altar before the Lord. It it is always always there. Take your Bibles, turn to Leviticus chapter 9. I know a lot of us have this text memorized, but it will help us if we read it. Again, as we step into this text in Leviticus 9, think about this from an ancient Jew, Jewish perspective. Think about it like with God. These folks don't have any context for what it is they've received yet. There is not hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition. In Leviticus 9, this is the first time that the priesthood is offering sacrifices according to the way that God has told them. There is no other context. All we know is that God told Moses and Aaron and the priests, give me offerings, make the offerings like this, 
the sacrifices should work like this, and they should be like this, and then you should do this with the blood, and do this with this blood, and that's what this is this offering. The burnt offering is this. The grain offering is this. The peace offering is this. Uh, the, uh, um, the heave offering is this. The drink offering is this. You have all of these offerings. Call the people together and worship me through sacrifice. If you get it wrong, I'm going to kill you. Okay, let's not get it wrong. <laughs> all right. So, here comes all of these things together. And the people are all standing there. No context. What the people have seen happen over the course of the last who knows how many weeks and months is the tent of meeting is a place that Moses goes into. And when the people have a concern, Moses goes into the tent of meeting. He meets with God. God is there. The pillar of cloud and or the pillar of fire the scriptures say, actually moves over the tent when Moses goes into it, and it comes to rest in the tent. And the people all come out from their tents to watch. Because wouldn't you want to watch if fire was about to hit somebody's tent? You can't not watch that kind of stuff. Have you ever been in a neighborhood where there's something that burns? Everybody comes out. It's like a neighborhood gathering. You know, and oh, what, what's going on? What did you see? Do you know what happened? I'm not sure about what happened, but I know this. I hope they're okay. What do they need? These are all good things, but nobody's going anywhere. This is, this is an exciting thing. One of the great experiences of my life, was, well, not one of the great experiences, was helping John Krause, like trying to figure out this whole situation. He comes running over to the house. Steph came running over to the house. Jay, we're in trouble. Like, there's this fire, and their chimney had gotten out of control, and it started to burn some of the wood around the side, and there was actually fire up in the eaves. We didn't know it yet, so I ran over to help John, and John and I are up on the second, second floor taking <laughs> literally saucepans of water and, like, running over and, like, throwing it on this thing, and eventually, I mean, this fire, it was out of control, and the whole neighborhood came out, and I found, John and I found ourselves laying on the ground with all of this smoke, and <laughs> John's like, I, I think we might be losing this one. Like, so I was like, I was like, I'm sorry, buddy. I'm sorry, man. I think you're right. I think you're right. Like the fire was actually hidden. The fire was up in the walls and it was in the ceiling. It's like, we, we should, John goes, do you think we should get out of here? Yeah, I think we should get out of here. And so we got out, but everybody comes together and here comes this great big procession. And then they cut the ceiling open and all this fire shows itself. All we had seen beforehand was smoke. The presence, the presence, though, was very much there. And while it was not consuming yet, it was there. It was this crazy prophetic experience for me. So here comes this pillar of fire and sets over the tent of meeting. When Moses actually goes into it, you don't walk toward that. You don't walk toward a place where fire comes to rest. Moses hops right in, and every time he comes back out, Every time he goes into the tent of meeting, as the text says, the people come to their tents to watch. And then God talks to the fire. I'm sorry, Moses talks to the fire. The fire talks back, and he comes back out with the word of the Lord. So the amazing thing here is that, again, there's no context. Aaron and the priest, they offer the burnt offering. And then they offer the grain offering. So here's the altar. The burnt offering is meat. Here's meat up on, top of the, uh, up on top of the burnt offering. And as you can tell, there's certain ways to do it. There's certain things that you do, certain things you don't do. You do cut off the breast meat. You do put that up on the altar. You do not put the junk, like all the nasty guts and everything. You actually have to clean those before you offer those to the Lord. So you wash those down. You put those up on the altar. And then uh, there's a grain offering that comes. And the grain offering also goes up on the altar. So here is meat. And here is bread. What is this? This is a meal. And the people of God are standing out in front. Here is an altar. Here is something that's about this high that the priest is standing at. It's about this level. It's a big box. In front of him is meat. In front of him is bread, the grain. The people of God have just set a table for the Lord. There is almost an invitation. Come, Lord. Will you come and dine with your people. Verse, verse 22. Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. 
So here's all of the stuff. This is important. Here's all the stuff. Here's the, here's the altar. Here's the offering. Here's the offering. Moses and Aaron, they do everything. The people are all watching this, watching this happen. And, and all of them aware of what God has said. So now just the normal thing happens. Moses and Aaron, it's done. And Moses and Aaron do what Moses and Aaron do, which is go into the tent of meeting. Why? That's where God is. God's in there. And so they go into the tent of meeting. This is normal. This is normal. What is not normal is for God to come out. Moses and Aaron go into the tent of meeting. All right, I guess that's it. Glad nothing bad happened. They came out and they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Well, yeah. You know, Moses and Aaron go into the tent of meeting. Normal. God's in there. They've seen this happen hundreds of times. What's rare is for them to come out and offer a blessing and then for fire to shoot down from God's presence from within his tent and to come and to consume the offering that's on the altar. Which, by the way, this is not judgment. This is presence. This is God. How, this is God we're talking about. How tame is God coming by just shooting fire down? You know what he could do? I mean, he has to cover Moses with, the, with his hand because the glory of the Lord is that strong just so he doesn't kill him. And God shows up. The people set a table for the Lord and God comes and he, what? What does he do with the, the, the offering? He consumes it. What are you and I going to do in a few minutes with the body and blood of Christ? Go ahead. We're going to consume it. But you're not Catholic. It's okay. Right? You're going you're gonna to consume it. What does Jesus say? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. God comes and he, sit and he eats with his people. That's what God, God ate that sacrifice. Because our God is fire. And that's, what, that's how fire eats. He consumes it, takes it, burns it up. And God comes out of the tent of meeting toward his people. He moves toward his people and he receives their offering of a meal to come and sit and be together. It just blows my mind. You can do it wrong. Nadab and Abihu, when they offered, died when they offered strange fire before the Lord. So fire isn't always a redemptive thing. Read the book of Revelation. You can, talk, you can read also about a place called a lake of fire. That's a place of judgment. So Nadab and Abihu were these two guys who offered perverted worship before the Lord in a way that came against God's authority and the way that he chose to live his authority. They offered strange fire. In Deuteronomy 4, God is defined for us again as a consuming fire. He is a fire that fully eats. A fire that fully consumes. 1 Kings 18, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Here's Elijah versus the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And they build their altar and Elijah builds his and Elijah soaks his in buckets and buckets of water that fills a trench around it, just soaking wet. And they both, the prophets of Baal, pray, bring down fire, Baal, bring down fire. But, and Elijah starts making fun of him. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's changing clothes. Maybe he doesn't like you anymore. Uh, that's why Baal's not bringing fire. And they go nuts, but doesn't work. Elijah says a simple prayer. And fire comes from heaven, just like in Leviticus 9. Elijah knew what to do in that spiritual warfare strategy because he knew his Bible. Did you hear me? Elijah knew what to do in spiritual warfare against the prophets of Baal because he knew his Bible. He did not invent anything in 1 Corinthians 18. All he did was Leviticus 9. He made a meal for the Lord. God, will you come up and show, will you show up and eat with your son? Darn right. 
And God really ate that day, really hungry. All the stones, all the water, all the ground around it. <laughs> My youth group once, I taught on this at summer camp. And I had, we, we met outside. There was like this outside amphitheater-ish kind of thing, kind of small. And I was teaching on this. And so I strung this thin metal wire from the stage up to a tree on a nice, nice tight angle. And I took a washer, and I, <laughs> I was 23 at the time, so forgive me. And I tied a kerosene-soaked rag onto this washer, right? Now, the kids are all sitting underneath this, by the way. And uh, I had a kid climb the tree with a lighter. And at, in the base, I, I, I built like an altar-ish kind of a thing. Were you there for this one? I don't think so. I, I, you were too old. The, and here was, here was like a, a fire here that was going to get ignited. And the water I poured on it was kerosene. And, uh, <laughs> and so at, my, at a certain juncture, I, like I said a key phrase, and Joe lit the, lit the rag, but I underestimated, <laughs> I underestimated just how like ready this thing was to burn. And so he lit the rag and sent it down the wire. And as it went down the wire, this thing started to like disintegrate and sparks and flaming pieces of, of like of fabric started to fall off of this thing among the kids. And it stopped like halfway down, like just over somebody's head. I had miscalculated, like, I don't know, the weight or whatever, or it got hung up or something like that. It never made it to the fire. All that happened was this kerosene-soaked rag sat about three feet over like a seventh grader's head, just burning and ash and and fumes and everything all over the place. It completely blew up in my face. Didn't work. Um, But I guarantee those kids are still talking about that. (laughs) And they're... A crazy youth pastor. That is not what happened to Elijah. Right? God completely consumes this thing. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Now fire starts to shift in Scripture. Right? Fire, fire starts to actually become broader and fuller in its definitions. Jeremiah hates the job that God has given him, but he can't not do it. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in. I cannot. Right, so now, like the word of the Lord is now being called out as fire, and Jeremiah is experiencing this burning within his heart. John the Baptist uses fire, and this is where things start to open up even more. I baptize you with water for repentance, So people that believed the Messiah was coming and that believed that John the Baptist either was his prophet or was the actual Messiah would come to John the Baptist to be baptized. Baptism existed long before the church ever got involved in it. Baptism was an Old Testament thing. And so they would come to be baptized with water for repentance. In other words, for cleansing. The purpose for baptism was just simply to say, I want to be clean to receive the Messiah. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with what? Read it. And fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So, Where does, initially in the text, where is the fire? It's it's on you. It's on you and me. When he comes, he will baptize you with fire. Where does he throw the chaff? Onto the fire. Where's the fire? It's in the people of God. Where does he throw the chaff? Into the fire. You and I have a sacred calling in this world to burn what is not God. And I'm not talking about people here. You and I have a sacred calling to burn what is not Him. The people of God stand as people who are set fire by the Lord, baptized 
by fire. And our, one of our calls is to be the place where what is not God gets consumed so that what is God can be revealed. John Wesley, somebody asked him, like, how do you preach so well? He was like, I don't preach well. People are like, you're crazy. You're awesome. He's like, I don't know what to tell you. God sets me on fire. People come to watch me burn. And it's in those places where God is revealed because what is not God can be burned away, which is a completely different sermon series. Luke 24, when he was at the table with them, he broke the bread, right? He broke the bread, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts, what? Burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. In John 20, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he what? He breathed on them. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Does anyone here like being breathed on? No. No. I mean, the only way that's okay is with Altoids. You know? And even then, it's sort of like, that's not cool. You know, like the dentist is as close as any of us ever get to that. And, uh, wow, that's a different thing. Okay. He, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's how the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit did come at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit also came on Samson. The Holy Spirit also came on Saul and David and Moses. The Holy Spirit came on Adam and Abraham. The Holy Spirit came on every prophet. Every prophet that ever prophesied for the whole of the Old Testament had the Spirit burning within them and breathing on them and speaking through them. That's why their words are in this book that is inspired slash God breathed by God. Let's not package the Holy Spirit into not being, oh man, this ticks me off. Let's not package the Holy Spirit into not being active before Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit has always been the Holy Spirit. And he has always been burning and breathing all down through all time. And people that want to receive him and walk in him can receive him and walk in him. And those that don't want to, don't. But when those things either happen or don't happen, it's not we who are the active agents. It is the Holy Spirit that comes and breathes in us and who catches us on fire. So when he comes... Our posture is to receive. To receive. Receive the Holy Spirit. We don't work hard for the Holy Spirit. We don't formula the Holy Spirit. We don't set up our religious constructs for the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't try and use worship music to try and build our momentum to feel like the Holy Spirit left. Whatever you do, don't ever leave a church service and be like, well, that was good today. I'm glad the Spirit showed up. No, the Spirit's here. Sometimes, it, sometimes it's flowing. Sometimes it's not. The active agent in that is the Holy Spirit and what he's trying to do. And we shouldn't judge our services based on our performances and our expectations of what it is for us to be empowered by him or not empowered by him. What we should be doing is listening, listening, listening. What are you doing here? And what does it mean for us to join you in that? Receive the Holy Spirit, however he wants to come. And he comes in some crazy ways. Allah, Acts chapter 2, right? That's, oh, Jesus says to receive again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And now we're back at the book of Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost. When they were there, what is showing up? Tongues of fire on their head. What three things are needed for something to burn? Air and heat and fuel. And the Holy Spirit shows up and he is the wind of God. The Holy Spirit shows up and he is the fire of God. Who is the fuel? You and I are the fuel. And he comes with his consuming ways and with his beautiful nature and with the fullness of who he is. 
And Hebrews 12 echoes Deuteronomy chapter 4 and says, Our God is a consuming fire. This is who He is. He is meant to come in and to consume and to burn up and to reveal all of those things that are not Him so that they can be taken away and so the fullness of who He is can fully be received. And then we walk in that. I don't know. I just show up. The Holy Spirit sets me on fire. People come to watch me burn. And this isn't one of those, uh, like, we should be on fire for Christ. Don't you want to be more on fire for Christ? Like, let's all go out there and let's get bold, you know, and let's, let's be on fire for Jesus. Sure, sure. But I'm advocating for something much deeper, broader, stronger, and fuller. And that's this, that you can't. That you and I cannot. We are not the wind. And we are not the heat. And we can try and build things and make things happen in our lives. But at the ultimate core, this is about surrender. At the core, this is about, this is still about, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. He comes with wind. He comes with fire. That is for certain. Will we receive what it is that he is doing? We almost always think of scripture, scriptural references to fire as negative. We almost always think of them in terms of judgment, hell, Hades, lake of fire, the devil, the whole nine yards. I'm not saying those things aren't there. What I am saying is that there is a much stronger representation of fire. And it's the concept of sacrifice. Sacrifices are meant to be burned. Sacrifices are consumed. So when Paul calls us to be living sacrifices, that by virtue of the definition means that you and I are called to burn. That if we are sacrifices who are alive, if we are sacrifices who are walking around and engaging our world, then that means that we are burning. If we're not burning, then that is some disconnect that is happening between the Holy Spirit and us. And we can work hard to try and fix that and make that happen, but we can't make that happen. God alone can make that happen. And God again desires to burn away what is not Him. The Holy Spirit comes with wind. The Holy Spirit comes with fire. Today, what is the ache in your heart? What causes you to feel What emotional burden do you carry in here with you? And what emotional burden do you not want to go back out to when you leave these doors? I think God today is inviting us to place us, ourselves, as living sacrifices again on his altar. Because that level of brokenness and that level of hurt and that level of heartache, we cannot handle. But we don't need to because he has. And so as we come to the table now, we come as broken people. We come as people who are without the answers. We come as people who don't have what it takes. Right? We engage together the Holy Spirit through wind and through fire. Stay with me, folks. They're just changing some things according to the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? We come together as the people of God to consume that which consumes us. That's cool. We come to partake in the bread and the cup, this beautiful representation of what it means for us to be consumed 
And we partake and consume that which consumes. And God burns away that which is not him. And we again receive his grace and his love and his beauty. And this meal, this meal that we now take together with him sets us on fire. Thank you, God, for your wind, for your fire. Thank you, God, for the grace, the beauty, and the wonder that you've given us in Christ. Come now and burn away all that is not you. The burdens, the hurt, the heartache, the sin, the sin that's been done to us, the sin that we ourselves have done, the ways we've hurt ourselves, our family, our friends, the experiences, the situations, the things that we do not want and did not ask for that have found us and that break us, the ache in our souls. God, come and burn away anything that is not you. Consume us, God, as we consume Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. The, uh, the phrase that we just sang, um, where, uh, where our shame is undone, I think that um, what I heard that saying was particularly, like, there are people here today who feel like failures. And there's people here today who feel like failures. And maybe not across the board, <laughs> but there's that one pocket. And that might be like, anything in your life. Failed failed parenting, failed marriage, failure in sin, failure in business, failure in relationships with brothers and sisters, failure in relationships toward parents. But I think I think God is wanting to consume the shame of failure today. He's wanting to consume the failures that are trying to consume you. And uh, I don't know who I'm talking to right now, um, but just know this. Like, the restorative gospel is more powerful today than it's ever been because no day has ever been today. And Jesus' blood and spirit and fire was only gaining power. (laughs) It is only picking up speed. It is only engaging because we just welcomed him and invited him. And so I would encourage you that whatever pocket it is that the Holy Spirit is trying to get to that you would prefer to keep locked away because of the shame of it, because of the feeling that you have about yourself in that place, let him come in there with his love and with his fire. It's not a fire of judgment. It is a fire of cleansing. And it needs to burn away what is not him. He wants you to be fully you. And that failure is telling you things that are not true about you. So allow him. Invite him. Invite his fire to come and to burn that away, and to really see yourself the way he sees you. Thank you, God. Thank you for your fire. We receive again your baptism with fire. We are the fuel. So God, come and burn away anything that is not you, that the power of who you are and that the power of your fire might be more and more released. For my brothers and sisters here today carrying the word failure and the ache of that burden from whatever experiential context they're bringing it. God, I pray that you would reach in and touch right now with your love and your grace and your invitation 
Like, wouldn't it be great to not carry that anymore? Wouldn't it be great to not have that label? Wouldn't it be great to not feel that way about yourself? Wouldn't it be great to see yourself the way God sees you? As his child, as glory and honor. And you might say, but you don't realize what it is that I've done. Jesus wants to consume all of you because he loves all of you. This is not a fire of judgment. This is not a fire of condemnation. This is a fire of the beautiful presence of the Holy Spirit who just simply wants to cleanse and to restore. So God, come and wipe out shame. Destroy shame. Destroy those labels, God. Burn those things up that the true beauty might be revealed. Thank you for your beautiful presence with us. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.